0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with former war correspondent Elizabeth Becker. Elizabeth was a war correspondent for the Washington Post. She was based in Cambodia and covered the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. Elizabeth joined me to talk about three brilliant women war reporters on the front line during the Vietnam War. We draw from her new book, You Don't Belong Here. How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the program award-winning journalist Elizabeth Becker, She uh, began her career as a war correspondent for the Washington Post in Cambodia. She was also a correspondent covering foreign policy in Washington, D.C. for the New York Times, and she is the author of the definitive book on the Khmer Rouge, When the War Was Over, and her latest book has just been released by Black Ink here in Australia. It's called You Don't Belong Here. How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War. Elizabeth is currently based over in Washington, D.C., and she joins me from there right now. And thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining us and welcome.
1: Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to be on your program.
0: Well, I've got to say I was really intrigued by this book when I first picked it up, not just because it touches on issues that I find personally interesting including women but also war and particularly 20th century war and I was really fascinated to learn about these three great women that you write about in this book Catherine Leroy, Frankie Fitzgerald and Kate Webb one of whom Kate Webb, is very exciting in the sense that uh, she was an Australian reporter, although her family were originally from New Zealand, and went over to cover the war in Vietnam, as did the other two journalists I just referenced. And what made this more interesting for me was also your professional background and experiences as a war correspondent in Cambodia, which no doubt would have been a really fascinating experience. So, first of all, I was interested in the fact that given your past experience as a war correspondent in Cambodia for the Washington Post, clearly Things may have been slightly better for women in war zones at that time, but even then, no doubt it was quite a significant thing for women to be reporting in war zones like Cambodia that really were mass killings and uh, highly dangerous environments to be in and obviously in some cases very male-dominated in terms of the leadership of war. So I wanted to get your sense, first of all, of your experiences as a war correspondent in Cambodia and how that has shaped your interest in these other women that you've sought to research?
1: Well, um, I came to the war in 1973, and Cambodia was the Cambodia campaign of the Vietnam War, so it, it, it's part of the Vietnam War. So the American War, which Australia took part in as an American ally, started in 1965 and ended in 1975. So I came in in the last two years. And I very much was following in the footsteps of these three women. I knew of them, and for instance, through a mutual friend, Kate Webb came to meet me at the airport in Hong Kong on my way to Cambodia just to make sure I got on the right airplane. I was so so green. And later she came down from Hong Kong to do reporting for the last years of the war and, and help me figure things out, Some, for instance, how to measure a bomb crater with my feet. And when I arrived in Cambodia, one of the books in my backpack was Francis Fitzgerald's Fire in the Lake, uh, Vietnamese and the Americans in, the v- in Vietnam, which is a classic of the war. So I very much profited from them. And I understood that even the, the opening, and yes, it was still very much um, a man's press corps. And of course, all soldiers were male, but they opened up a road for me, and that's why I wrote this book. I thought that who they were and, and all the contributions they'd made and all the pioneering work they had done had been forgotten. And I, you know, I first was puzzled and then I became infuriated because these women should be as well known as Martha Gellhorn and others. So that's why I, I wrote a book, and yes, it came directly from my experience in Cambodia.
0: In terms of your experiences, obviously being a foreign journalist, someone coming into a new land, I was really interested in the fact that you already had a really strong passion, academic passion, in the area of Asian studies, particularly, I think it was Southeast Asia, and the fact that the door was closed on your academic career And it then opened up this new avenue and through a great friend of yours who also sounds really fascinating, Silvana Foa. Yes, my
1: friend Silvana Foa, who I met when we were both um, students in India, had gone on to Cambodia and had been trying to convince me to come and visit her. And I had no interest until um, my thesis was rejected, I think, because I refused to sleep with my professor. He denied that. But anyway, I thought, heck. I was so naive, I thought, well, I've studied the region, maybe I can make it. And so I went. And within a few months, she was thrown out of the country for writing a very good investigation of the illegal action of the American government in the, uh, the uh, big air campaign, bombing campaign. And I was on my own. So, yeah, I, I, I very much appreciated the help that both Silvana gave me and Kate there were so few women reporting that it was a it was a wonderful lifeline no question
0: well it was also interesting that you were going over there at age 25 uh, you say you had no idea what you had gotten yourself into and it sounds very similar to the women that we'll get onto in just a moment in terms of the fact that they really threw themselves into a war zone with no you know cleared career path laid out for them no job necessarily waiting for them in terms of financial security, and yet they managed to pick up work to demonstrate their worth, to show their commitment to war reporting. And so I wondered in terms of your experience when you got to Cambodia, how did you manage to build that career, to build those connections and to manage the, the demands of war life?
1: everybody was the same for women because women were not allowed to even cover sports in those days, much less the war. So yes, that was the same as them. All the women in those 10 years war with very few exception had to pay their own way, had to find a job, had to figure things out because women were not accepted as serious reporters. And that's the case in Australia and the United States and in Europe. So yeah, we were all the same and you did what, um, what you had to do. You were on the ground, you knocked on a lot of doors, and because um, there was so much interest in the war, eventually you got work, and hopefully you were able to make enough money to keep going until another opportunity and another opportunity. And so finally I became the contract stringer for Newsweek and for the Washington Post. But uh, yes, it was the same for all of us from 1965 to 1975. I I think I can count on one hand, the number of women in those long 10 years who actually were sent over by a news organization. The rest of us had to do it on our own.
0: And for those who are listening and aren't familiar with the role and the job of a stringer, could you just share briefly with us what that means?
1: You have the exclusive right to be the reporter for that organization uh, when their own staff correspondent is not visiting. So you're the local resident reporter And you get a very small um, monthly stipend, and then you're essentially paid by the piece. So it's not a salary. There's no health insurance or anything like that. But if you have enough strings, you can make enough money. And if you write enough, you can make even more money.
0: And I just wanted to read out a little quote from the introduction. You said, You had broken several important stories. I witnessed a U.S. Army officer illegally advising the Cambodian Army under attack, and I published an investigation of the Khmer Rouge identifying their leader for the first time as a man named Saloth Sar, later known as Pol Pot, and describing his revolution as brutal and ruthless as well as antagonistic towards their Vietnamese allies." So in terms of that level of risk and firsthand experience and the types of stories that you were breaking, did you ever find yourself getting into situations that put your own life in danger?
1: Yes. And you could do it just walking out of the street on some days when there there are mortar attacks nearby. So yeah, I mean, and that's part of it. There's no question. Yes.
0: Let's move into Vietnam and talk about some of the fascinating women who you detail in this book. And obviously there is a great deal of detail and it reads quite like a narrative. And I enjoyed getting to know these women and their different personalities and their different backgrounds. The first women that you talk about in this book is someone called Catherine Leroy, who is a French photojournalist and she has just a fascinating story and background and she seems to have always had a very strong rebellious streak that held her in very good stead in terms of when she arrived in Vietnam and started to butt up against some of the masculine behaviour, not just of soldiers but also most particularly against those who were in the press corps who perhaps were not as welcoming towards women in the battlefield field, given that they had not been allowed to cover war zones previously in in wars such as World War II?
1: Uh, Catherine Leroy um, was, like all of us, she was in her mid-20s. She wanted to to do something important. Uh, So she arrived with a camera and literally no real experience. Yes, she was very much rebellious, rebelling against a petite bourgeois Catholic upbringing in the suburbs of Paris. And um, she was considered at first just a a strange type who couldn't last. But when she proved to be successful, as you said, her colleagues were, I think, they were both suspicious and competitive. And um, they tried to do her in. She was too clever, though. And she became a photographer renowned for her fearless, fearless behavior on the battlefield She believed that the best photographs were the ones where you could see someone's eyes, which covering a war is very dangerous, but she got it done and she sold her photographs quickly and they were on the covers of magazines around the world to the point that she was the first woman to ever win the George Polk Award in photography and later um, the Robert Capical Medal Award.
0: And in terms of her physicality, it's interesting that you remark upon the fact that she was only about Five feet tall, um, so clearly not an imposing physical person. However, she did have a really interesting physicality, and and that also tended to work in her favour in some regards in terms of her photojournalism.
1: Well, what she did was she's so small, she no one noticed her. So yeah, she could she could push her way onto a helicopter to make sure she got to where she wanted to be, but then she sort of disappeared, and she would crawl in the mud to get her photograph and no one would notice her, she was so small. And, and people would say after they saw the, saw the photographs, I didn't see her. So she was small, she was quick and she, she could be invisible almost.
0: And she was also really interesting in the sense of her French culture and her French background and was seen to be a person of interest in that regard, able to share some little parts of France with the American soldiers, for example. But because she didn't have a partner like Fitzgerald did, she was targeted in terms of gossip around her sex life and the way that she conducted herself. And there was a lot of unfair criticism around her behavior, wasn't there?
1: Well, first of all, as a French woman, she grew up knowing about Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, what the French called Indochina, their colonies. So she had a deeper appreciation for what the war meant than a lot of Americans, because, you know, her father wanted the French to stay, and he cried when the French lost in Dien Bien Phu, so that was very important. In terms of the gossip, there were so few women, and they were treated with such, you know, disdain in terms of their profession. The men mostly talked about their personal lives and who was sleeping with whom, and because for the most of the years that she was in Vietnam, she was the only woman photographer on the battlefield, so there was sort of vicious gossip, but yeah, it was not it was not good. It, and it bothered her.
0: And it does seem that the challenges that she had in terms of her success, there were a couple of times when her press badge or accreditation was threatened and taken away briefly and also there was also another attempt to prevent women from reporting at all on the ground at one point in Vietnam and that didn't just affect Leroy but what were these instances and how did Leroy manage to get past them?
1: Well as I said um, there was a lot of competition and, um, and just disdain for having a woman as they said, act like a man. She didn't belong there. So her colleagues, many anonymous, a few by name, uh, worked with some of the U.S. military pressmen to challenge whether or not she was a discredit to the profession. And she briefly lost her credentials until she fought back and proved that you know not only was that not the case, but that's, that wasn't grounds for her to lose it. But that really hurt her. And after that, she was very careful about who she would befriend, and who she would essentially work with. So she found some American and, and European photographers who she trusted, and she only worked with them. She was part of a handful, and secondly, a handful of women who convinced the Pentagon, the civilian side of the U.S. military, to prevent the military from imposing that World War II ban, which was still official. Uh, it was, should have been um, imposed, but because of... The nature of the Vietnam War, it wasn't. It was, it was not um, enforced. And General William Westmoreland, who headed the U.S. military, threatened to, to reimpose it. And the women convinced them not to. And that was important because that essentially was the end of that ban. And every woman since has been able to cover um, the U.S. military on the battlefield because of a handful of those women.
0: And you do say in the book that this was one of the rare times that these women could and would gather together in one group to... Really push back and to organise together. At the time, it was really seen to be a negative thing to be associated with women's liberation, as you talk about with Kate Webb. But I was interested in the observations you made about the fact that these women had very solitary or lonely experiences. And although they did find some people and individuals that they could speak with, and, you know, I guess friendly minds or friendly intellectuals that they could explore their ideas with, but this experience of working in a war seem to be very solitary, very individual?
1: Well, war can be lonely, first of all, male or female. But when you don't have female friends, it makes it lonelier. And so the, all the women, and I, I interviewed a lot who I didn't even quote, they all said it could be very lonely at times, because you're going through an incredibly difficult emotional um, situation where countries are at war. And with the lack of female friendship, that is markedly lonely.
0: And so in terms of Catherine Leroy and her experience, maybe we can close out her story. She seems to have had such a fascinating career and I did look at some of her photos to get a sense of her photographic style and one of the photos that you do mention in the book is that image where she jumped out of the plane with the American military and parachuted down into a jungle in Vietnam and she took this photo midair of the other parachutists also going down with their parachute open and it is really a striking and very beautiful image. And I just was really interested in that experience and the ways that she provided such a really interesting and unique perspective, especially given that she had other skills, such as being able to, you know, jump out of a plane and and parachute safely down. These are things that not every war journalist or photographic journalist would have.
1: That's why I opened the book with that, because part of her rebellious youth was that she, um, on a dare, learned to jump in France. So she, she arrived in Vietnam already um, with, a, with a master certificate. And when all the journalists heard about the first airborne assault in Vietnam, they wanted to apply. But Catherine was the only one accepted because she's the only one qualified. So there's no other journalist, photographer or writer who was allowed to jump. And she's so small and the parachute was so big, it's amazing. She jumped while the other soldiers were jumping into a combat zone. She took, she had three cameras around her neck. She took the photographs, she landed, and then she followed them into that combat zone. So
0: it's, it's extraordinary. And it turned out to be the last air assault. Indeed. And in terms of the ending of Catherine Leroy's career, How did she conclude her career? How long did she tough it out in that intense environment?
1: She left Vietnam the end of 1967, beginning of 1968. She did some photography in the Middle Eastern Wars and then came back to Vietnam for the very end of the war in 1975. And then from there, she went back to the Middle East, took more war photographs. She did some fashion photography in Japan. And in her 50s, she, she had lost her footing in the field and she died very young in her early 60s of cancer.
0: That's a really sad story to hear, and I know that you said Catherine had asthma as well, which was something she had to contend with during her childhood, but it seems like lots of things just wouldn't stop her from actually achieving her passions. Right,
1: right, you're right, very much so.
0: I mean, that was kind of similar to the other two women that you really do go into in greater depth, Frances Fitzgerald, who is an American born of great wealth and privilege, She has a really fascinating family with various interesting jobs, including her father, of course. And she seemed to also be pretty determined to go and make her way to Vietnam to cover this and to be a writer in this instance. Could you share with us a little bit of the background of Frances and how her experience perhaps differed slightly to the other women, given her background and particularly her connections within the American political sphere?
1: Well. she was extremely wealthy. All three of them paid their own way, but Fitzgerald was the only one who had a very sizable bank account. That so it was not a it wasn't a problem for her. And when she got there, she'd already through connections had already made sure that should her um, reporting work out, she had magazines that would want to take her articles. But when she landed, everybody thought, oh, she's so connected. Her father's number three in the CIA. Her mother is the mistress of Adlai Stevenson and a top Democratic socialite and activist. And so they presumed that Fitzgerald would just take the easy route, mine all her connections in the embassy and write uh, stories that way. And she absolutely rejected that completely. And she used her privilege in what I thought was a brilliant way She turned her back on the idea of covering the war largely from the battlefield and whether or not the American policymakers knew what they were doing. And instead, she wanted to look at Vietnam as a country. So... She was so privileged. She had never seen anything like the privations of Vietnam, what the war was doing to the people. So she would interview um, people in the the really horrible civilian hospitals. She went to the slums. She went to the villages that were being raised because of war policy. So she wrote um, stories that no one else wrote. She wrote about what the war was doing to the Vietnamese people, the landscape, the culture, and where it fit into the Vietnamese history. So Uh, she sort of turned that privilege on its head.
0: Yeah, it sounded like she didn't feel that she was tied to a certain way of reporting it, given her background, that she didn't feel like she owed anything to her father or to the American country, in a sense, in terms of the angle that the American military wanted people to think about the war and and whether it was being fought on a a kind of fair footing.
1: At that stage, it was more that... You look at the root of whatever the policy is. And she didn't just take it for granted that the United States was on the right side. She looked to see, and at, at that stage, the United States had never lost a war. Vietnam would be the first war that the United States lost. So she said, okay, what is the root of this? Do they know why they're fighting here? And if they know why they're fighting, are they fighting in the way that will lead to victory? And she told the bad news that she didn't see how they could win. And so it's not as if she's not pro-American or anything. I think it's that she was a very serious journalist.
0: Absolutely. And one of the interesting anecdotes that I remember finding you know, particularly poignant was the fact that she listened really intently in these discussions she was having with other members of the press corps and also other Americans over in Vietnam. You say that she displayed her new savvy in the most pedestrian setting, the daily military briefings christened the five o'clock follies by the sceptical press corps. And then you go on to say, after attending several briefings, Fitzgerald noticed that the official kill ratio of friendlies to enemies never ended in five or zero. She investigated further and found this was always the case. It was a statistical impossibility. She pointed out this flaw to the briefer in front of the press corps in the process confirming what reporters knew from the field, that military and civilians made up body counts for their superiors. Her observation infuriated MACV officials. I mean, it sounds like that is serious journalism at its best.
1: Right. And it also showed her very, very, very smart woman. It's it's good journalism, but it's also a very, very intelligent woman.
0: In terms of her personal experience over there, you did bring in a couple of friends and one love interest who she met over there who she seemed to develop close relationships with, one intellectually and one romantically, and that they also shaped her experience of Vietnam. Right.
1: Her lover was uh, Ward Just, the Washington Post correspondent, charming, smart, great writer, great reporter, And um, he later became one of our best novelists. Their relationship fell apart after Vietnam when they were both coming home and she was really not interested in becoming a wife at that stage in her life. She wanted to continue her research and write the book that became Fire in the Lake. And so he married another woman very quickly. The other man was Daniel Ellsberg, who was um, a PhD, uh, another intellectual who was working for this Department of Defense. He was the only one who took Fitzgerald seriously and he supported the war, obviously, but he was willing to spend hours talking to her about it and he became famous for being the man who leaked the Pentagon Papers.
0: Oh, I thought the name looked familiar. I was like, where do I know him? (laughs) Well, I'm not surprised anymore that they managed to have really fascinating five-hour-long conversations then. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep
1: and Kate Kate was different from them because she's Australian mm. and she came because she thought she could cover uh, the Australian army, and unlike the Americans, the Australians held on to their World War II ban and never let a woman cover them in Vietnam ever. so Kate had no choice but to try to cover the Americans and she turned out to be brilliant in a completely different way than Frances uh, Kate had the hardest time getting a job, I think maybe because she was Australian and she had to work for American organizations. There was no Australian organization who had a local hire. And she banged on enough doors until the UPI hired her. And then she became a really great combat reporter, which is unusual because she graduated from college with a philosophy degree and she was also a practicing artist. So that's the last thing you would expect also very smart, very, very smart, but she became a great combat correspondent, brave as Catherine Loire, but um, as immersive, I mean, as, as smart as, as Frankie in, in that sort of writer sense, and all three of them very immersive in the local culture. So Kate became an expert on the South Vietnamese army, on on a lot of the South Vietnamese government, and she also was had a different approach to her male colleagues, whereas Frankie just tried to ignore them, and Katrine got into uh, disputes with them. Kate became one of them. She became one of the guys. She cut her hair very short. She was always wearing her camouflages. And when they made fun of wib- women's lib, she made the same jokes. She didn't want to be considered just a woman correspondent, that that she was a correspondent. If she was worried that if they called her a woman, that meant she was lesser. And that worked for a while, but um, I saw in her private notes to herself in letters and not letters per se, but her um, late night scribblings that it, it came at quite a high price. And um, she had to swallow a lot of indignities and, and um, harassments and just pretend she was one of the guys. But she had, I think, easily the most prominent female byline through the war. I can't think of another woman who had more bylines covering war, combat in Vietnam and Cambodia. She rose to become the bureau chief for all of UPI in Cambodia, United Press International. And uh, again, she didn't want it to be that she was a big first because she did that, because she did not want to be singled out as a woman. In fact, once a Women's Wear Daily, which is a um, fashion paper in the United States, did a story about the news hens, as the women were called, who were working with the news hawks, the men. And they, went, they asked, Kate, how did you fit in? And she didn't. She sort of ignored the question and just talked about whether or not the South Vietnamese had the right automatic rifles. That's how she was.
0: Good on her for deflecting that, because I know a lot of women don't want to just be seen through only that lens and being seen as a woman war reporter. They want to be seen as a war reporter, which was very difficult to get that kind of reception at the time, and still to some extent can be, depending on the situation today. I did want to read out a section about Kate Webb and her really interesting experience that you've mentioned just briefly there. Quote, Webb developed a loner's mystique within the press corps. She got along with everyone but remained aloof. She was friendly with other women. She saw Le in the field occasionally, but she had no close female friend other than her Vietnamese landlady. She liked drinking after hours with colleagues, all men, but then would disappear. In an unpublished novelistic memoir, she wrote about avoiding unwanted sexual advances from the men. One character warns her, beware, kid, he leches after you like the rest of us. That certainly is... Something which is obviously a universal experience for women. These unwanted sexual advances, particularly in male dominated fields or contexts, and obviously a war zone, if you're a war zone correspondent, would absolutely be one of those contexts how did Kate Webb deal with these kind of situations like you even talk about kind of comments that other men had made about you and your legs for example and this is seems like it does tend to be a a common experience this kind of unwanted sexual attention and remarks and women needing to in some way protect themselves from potential unwanted advances she would
1: get out of harm's way you leave when they're still drinking and you go back to your room and you lock the door. Or um, you make sure that when you're out in the field, you're with someone you can trust. It just becomes automatic and um, you, you avoid all those things. Like if you went to a dinner and you saw all of a sudden um, men bringing prostitutes in and getting loud and crazy, you left. So it's, it's a lot of avoidance. And still, that didn't mean you, you could get rid of them always, but you could certainly push them away. But yeah, it, was, it, it would never happen today as badly as it was then. I mean, Kate really had to swallow a lot. But um, she told me, never, she said, um, don't complain in public, just keep a low profile and it'll go away.
0: And when you met Kate, what kind of sense did you get from her? And potentially that advice might have been something that you took on. I'm not sure. But what did you take away from that meeting?
1: I met her in Hong Kong and she took care of me in Hong Kong. And then she came back a couple of times to um, Cambodia. And so, yeah, I saw her. And um, she's the kindest person in the whole world. She was so smart. She worked so hard. She's like a big sister. Everybody liked Kate. Everybody liked Kate. She's very funny. She had the softest voice. So you always had to lean close to hear her. Yeah, she knew how to navigate. I took her advice and I was glad I did. I mean, there's problems with it down the road, but no, she was just a great colleague. Everybody wanted to be around Kate. She was a legend at a very young age. I was very lucky to have known her.
0: Having read about her, I'm really impressed by her and wish that I had got to meet her as well. She sounds amazing and we should be very proud as Australians to have someone of that passion and intellect and grit to have been you know, playing such a key role in the Vietnam War, reporting in the conflict zones. And you talk about the fact that her news stories from the field were very notable and quite different from the traditional wire service reports because she often used strong personal narratives which some journalists shy away from but she didn't and they do seem to be very effective in getting across uh, the gravity of certain situations but also sometimes how seemingly benevolent situations can turn into conflict almost instantly. And so she does say and write, I had been sitting on the steps of the command post with Colonel Fook and Colonel True and we were laughing about always meeting on the street. We had been there about 15 minutes and Colonel Luan joined us wearing a new pair of boots. You then go on to say, Kate Webb left to check on nearby fighting when two minutes later the rocket hit quote there was an explosion smoke was billowing from the building I saw the bodies but could not tell the difference between the dead and wounded because they were caked with white plaster dust and blood rangers and police loaded them onto jeeps shielding them with their own bodies and then you say she admitted to say that she rushed back and aided the wounded before writing her account I mean that is just a phenomenal piece of writing just there in terms of vividly describing a situation very effectively and using that narrative account. But to me, and I wonder what your take is on it, it doesn't seem to undermine the objectivity of a reporter.
1: Oh, no, no. And um, I think nowadays this is accepted universally, but um, then it wasn't. It was more straight down the line, just the facts, ma'am. And all three of these women, um, I think in part because they're outsiders, they were able to create their own style. And Kate brought that humanity to war reporter. And I also quote one of her pieces on guys who were in helicopters. She did it naturally. She did it fluidly. There's no no excesses of anything. It was, this is what happened. She writes her narrative. And she draws you into the story and you feel like you're there. And that's it's actual, factual. It, she draws the picture and it's a true picture.
0: And it seems like these approaches to writing, including uh, obviously Fitzgerald and Webb's, were noted and valued and commented on as providing a really unique perspective, both of them in different ways. Do you think that they were affecting the way that journalism was being conducted and reporting was being conducted? Then were they influencing other journalists as well?
1: Cause and effect is hard, you know, obviously, and I, I, I quote some of the people who say, yes, it affected academia as well as journalism. But yeah, and how much of it was directly them, but there's no question that they were the pioneers of the style. And then after them, it was very much picked up. And it's now common, it's a matter of course, that when you cover a war, you want to know about it. the whole country. You want to know all of the religions of Iraq, Iraq, for instance, and who was up, who was down, is it Shiite, is it Sunni, who's being favored? You know, The whole questions that, that they all asked now is normal where it wasn't in um, Vietnam. So yeah, no question. They broke through the glass ceilings and just as importantly as outsiders, they saw a greater humanity of, of the war and changed the style. So yes, that's why they're important on International Women's Day.
0: Yes, which it is right now as we speak in <laughs> Australia, it's just about to be in America on your side of the world. Elizabeth, in terms of how the general public remembers these women, or perhaps in some cases don't remember these women compared with their male colleagues, what has been their legacy, particularly in America, given the status or the significance of the Vietnam War, and even obviously in Vietnam itself, are these women better known over there, then perhaps they may be elsewhere, or has there been a, a kind of forgetting of these women to a significant extent?
1: That's one of the reasons I I wrote the book. They've been forgotten too much, and it's no better here than anywhere else. And uh, you guys, uh, Australians, were were wonderful in that they um, made a stamp with Kate's face on it um, a few years ago when they were honouring women in war. But no, I mean that's why I wrote the book. Uh, their their influence in terms of what they contributed is amazing. And um, as I said, they broke through the glass ceiling. But um, the reason I I wrote this book was in order to uh, remind people of what's been forgotten. And it's not the first profession where the women's contribution gets buried. And every year, every month, there's a new story about the the scientists or the um, the engineers who had been forgotten. Well, you know, I wanted these three to be remembered by not just um, journalists, but people who were interested in the Vietnam War. Um, I wrote this book so that they could be part of the conversation. And, then, and in this interconnected world, I think when you throw that pebble, so to speak, out, it's, you know, the butterfly flapping the wing. I hope it, it leads to other things and other things and other things. And there's no statue to Martha Gelhorn of World War II, but everybody remembers her. Part of that is because it was a war that everybody was proud of winning. Uh, but I think, you know, you're doing it just by having me on your program. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Thank you.
0: I think we're, we're doing it together. I'm so glad to contribute. And I'm so grateful that <laughs> I've made it possible for Australians here to actually hear from you. Elizabeth, thank you so much for writing this book. And I really appreciate the commitment you've brought to this to bringing their memories to us.
1: Well, thank you. And um, happy International Women's Day.
0: (laughs) You too, Elizabeth. Thank you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast.